Hi, everyone. Welcome back to The Tish. As a reminder, we release these deep dives in short two-week bursts. And today we'll start with the Ma'or Vashemesh. Welcome to Tashma, the podcast where you get to listen in on Hadar's Beit Midrash. I'm Rabbi Avi Killa. Today we're sitting back down for The Tish with Dina Weiss, A Taste of Chassidut. In this mini-series, Dina introduces us to five Hasidic masters. Today, I'm in the studio with Dina to talk about the Ma'or Vashemesh. So Dina, let's set the table. Who wrote the Ma'or Vashemesh? The Ma'or Vashemesh is Rabbi Kalanimus Kalman Epstein, and he is famous for being my favorite in this whole series. Ooh, tell us why. I feel that the Ma'or Vashemesh has a real, true love for people. Uh, He never talks about the requirement to love other people. It's just self-evident in the way that he thinks and in the way that he writes. Uh, You know, sometimes he'll talk about the inherent goodness of people and their inherent ability to do X, Y, Z thing and how he just thinks people are amazing so much so that you wonder sometimes if he's met people. Um, (laughs) And I just like I find his approach to be so affirming and really something to aspire to. That really draws me in. I'm I'm his people, I think. I also love people. I move through the world just thinking how much I love people. So this sounds like a great, a great thinker for me to sink my teeth into. Um, is there anything we should know about his biography or his style, his approach? The Morva Shemesh is one of the core students of another teacher, the Noam Eli Melech, Rav Eli Melech of Lezhensk. And I'm telling you this because one of the contributions of the Morva Shemesh is to kind of shift his teacher's approach. His teacher was very focused on the role of the tzaddik, you know, this central spiritual figure that has direct access to God. And the way that the Morva Shemesh learns from his teacher is he takes the centrality of the tzaddik, but he totally transforms him from someone who's doing theurgy and letter permutations and all sorts of stuff that we could not imagine doing. And instead says that the tzaddik really has, I would say, two primary functions. The first is that the tzaddik is a convener. That gets back to our notion of this podcast as the tish. Mm -hmm. The tzaddik is just the axis around which people gather, and the people are actually learning from each other. They're not really learning from the tzaddik himself. And I feel like that's such a humble mode for for someone who is himself a tzaddik to really view what the congregation is doing. Yeah, that's a really beautiful idea. And it helps me actually also understand and think about Hasidic thought in relation to Hasidism or Hasidic people, you know, people who behave, as you said, coming to a tish, coming around a table together, going to visit a Rebbe. What's happening in those scenes? That's a really helpful frame for how people behave. And also it helps me understand what you started with, that he loves people. And the second element is that he thinks that to the extent that the tzaddik teaches, right, and does actually have something to offer as himself. For him, the primary way that the tzaddik teaches is by example. And when the tzaddik does tshuva, that inspires everybody else to also do tshuva and to also repent. And so there's this sense that people learn from their environment. You don't actually need to teach them. You don't need to tell them explicitly what they're supposed to do. You're supposed to model it and also provide them with the opportunity right, to be exposed to good models. And I think there's something so healthy about that approach and also so welcoming about that approach because not everybody is going to be able to study really complicated texts, but everybody's able to 
witness the way other people behave. And I think he also calls on us to really be conscious of the way that we engage with the world and the way that we present ourselves because people are always learning from us. Sounds like we have a tremendous amount to learn from him, and I'm really excited to listen. Thanks. The revelation at Mount Sinai was the point when we got the Torah. But according to the Midrash, there was more. The Midrash teaches that not only did the people hear God's voice, God actually peeled back the heavens and allowed us to look into God's home, as it were. And people were able to look up and see all of the angels that were in heaven. I could only imagine what it was like to see all of these angels camped around God, serving God, singing to God. It must have been a truly amazing sight. So what's kind of anticlimactic is what B'nai Israel, what the people were most impressed with. According to the Midrash, what the people were most impressed with was that the angels were all in groups and each group had its own flag, its own dego. And according to the Midrash, God noticed that B'nai Yisrael really wanted to have flags, just like the angels have flags. And then God made a promise that God, out of his great love for the people, is going to give them flags of their own, flags just like the angels have. Now, I like a good flag just as much as the next person, but there's something about this Midrash that is so bizarre to me. Who cares ultimately about flags? Why is that considered to be something that God is showing his great love to us through his willingness to let us have flags of our own? Now, obviously, the Midrash's purpose in telling us about the angels and telling us about the flags is to explain why it is that when B'nai Israel were traveling in the desert, they were traveling in this strict formation and each tribe had their own flag. So the Midrash is trying to explain, oh, well, the reason why we had these flags in the desert is because B'nai Israel really wanted them. And the reason why they wanted them is that the angels had them. But I think there's something a little bit more deep that has to be happening in this Midrash, and the Mora Shemesh is going to help us uncover what that is. First, I think it's important to understand that the Midrash is not just about flags. It's actually arguing three things about the formation of B'nai Israel in the desert. The first is that there's something holy about this arrangement. This is a holy camp. B'nai Israel are camped around the Mishkan, around the tabernacle, which is where God lives. So their encampment in the desert is an exact replica of the way that God lives in heaven. In heaven, God is in the center, and all of the angels are clustered in groups around him. On earth, God lives in the center, and all of the tribes of Israel are encamped in groups around him. The second is that this type of strict formation, where I have my own place, and I never leave it, and you don't come into my place, and I don't go into yours, is actually something attractive and desirable. When B'nai Israel saw this in heaven... They were moved by it. They wanted it for themselves. There's something attractive about having a place of your own where you know you're supposed to be and you know that you belong. And the third is that B'nai Israel's ability 
to have this kind of formation for themselves, to replicate the camping of the angels, and again, with these flags, was actually a symbol of God's love. It's not just that this is the best arrangement or the most heavenly arrangement. It was a gift that God gave us that we were allowed to have, an arrangement that was similar to the arrangement that God created for the angels in heaven. But the Majestus are really explained why, right? Why was this attractive? Why was this important? And this is where the Morva Shemesh comes in. And the Morva Shemesh says, what B'nai Israel were really jealous of was not the flags. What B'nai Israel were jealous of was the sense that the angels have of their place and of their purpose. And specifically, no angel ever tries to become a different angel. If you are a seraph, you are a seraph for the rest of your life or whatever it is that angels have. If you are an ofan, you are an ofan. You understand what your role is and you take pride in it. Not only are you an ofan, but you are an ofan with other ofanim under the flag of the ofanim. So if you're one kind of angel, a seraph, you don't want to be and you're not trying to be another kind of angel, an ofan. And so according to the Morva Shemesh, what the people were excited about, what they were jealous of, was this sense of security and self-assuredness that the angels have. And what B'nai Israel wanted for themselves was to inculcate that moral quality of not being jealous of what other people have, of not being jealous of other people's spiritual accomplishments or ways of being in the world, and instead being able to recognize just as there is this type of angel who has this type of strength and they are an important contributor to the pantheon of angels, so too I, as a human being, I'm going to have my role, I'm going to have my place. And it's actually a very human quality to not want that. Human beings are often dissatisfied with where we are and who we are. And what B'nai Israel saw in the angels was, oh, they're actually happy with who they are and where they are. I'm jealous of that satisfaction. I'm jealous of that sense of, I know what I contribute and I know where I belong. And then when God granted this wish, right, when God gave them flags of their own, God was saying, I'm going to help you inculcate this quality. I'm going to enable you to see. And this is where I think the flags come in. I'm going to enable you to see how much you matter. I'm going to enable you to see what you contribute. And the lesson here to us, I think, is very straightforward, but that doesn't make it any less profound. Right? The first is that God did not create you to be someone else. God created you to be who you are. And we spend a lot of energy trying to become someone else. We spend a lot of energy imagining how much better we would be if we were like X or Y person. And the lesson here is, no, if God wanted you to be like that person, God would have created you like that person. God created you to be the type of angel that you are. And your role is to appreciate that and do your best to embody that. Just to be clear, this is not an invitation to be lazy. This is not an invitation to not care about developing yourself, but it's an invitation for you to become the best version of yourself as opposed to trying to convert yourself to be another person. And the second is that every type of angel and every tribe has a flag. 
And you might think, well, I'm not a lady. I'm just in Shevet Zvulun, right? And I don't really matter. And and yes, I have to be sort of satisfied with my place, but maybe I'm going to be resigned to being in my place. I'm going to feel defeated. Like since I can't go any higher, I might as well be happy where I am. And the granting of the flags and the flying of the flags shows that this is actually not something that is a symbol of defeat. Since I can't become somebody else, I guess I'll be myself. But rather, we should try to be who we are and we should be proud of who we are, always flying our flags that represent all of the qualities that we have. And I think this brings us back to the element of God's love and that this is really a gift. It's hard to walk around with a sense of feeling inadequate. It's hard to exist in the world wondering if you should be more like something or someone else. And when God gives us these flags and enables us to fly them, I think he's also inspiring us to fly them. I think he's also saying to us, you are exactly as I want you to be. Continue to be true to yourself. And that is an expression of my love, not just of people in general, but specifically my love for you. This episode was produced by Sam Greenberg, Effie Unterman, and Jeremy Tabak. Thank you to David Chabinski for recording and editing this episode. Music for the Tish is from Hannah Raskin's debut album, Raza Capella, produced by Rising Song Records. Mm-hmm.